This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. And we should welcome people to the first of our summer episodes, these cheerful conversations. Summer of love. Cheerful summer. Sung to the tune of Bananarama's Cruel Summer. I didn't know that one. You're not that familiar with Bananarama's Oove? It ain't what you do, what you, it's the way you do it. Gets results. That's Bananarama, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that Fun Boy 3 in Bananarama, actually? Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no flies on me. Yeah. How did I know that? I don't know. Who was the singer in the Fun Boy 3? I mean, I have absolutely no Scooby-Doo who the singer in the Fun Boy 3 was. It was Terry was. Hall from the specials. Oh. You had this real boost to your self-confidence because you pulled Funboy 3 out of the hat and then I completely undermined it by cross-examining you. That's all right. I'm used to being undermined by you, Jeff. I'm sorry. Now, we are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. Oscar Wilde? I thought it was not Jesus Christ, that one. What? It was Oscar Wilde. Ah, uh, you see? That is not bad. Look, Funboy yeah. 3 and Oscar Wilde. I mean, you know, I'm on a roll here. <laughs> Why am I bringing up that quote? Uh, I don't know. To lead us into today's guest. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. Yeah. The world's most famous, beloved astrophysicist. Yes. Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox. Now, I'm sure you must have encountered him over the years. Where would I have encountered him? I don't know. You just, you, you, you know, you move in some circles. Also, presumably... As uh, a young spad or whatever you were in the new Labour machine, you, you must have been a big fan of D-Reams, Things Can Only Get Better. But was he in there at the time? He was the keyboard player. I remember being at the Royal Festival Hall. 
and Dream playing things can only get better. This is in 1997. I mean, this is the, the night, election night. Yes. When were you on election night, 1997? It was, I think, during a trough in my alcoholism, so I would oh, struggle, right, I right, would struggle right. to place that. Right, right. I did, okay. I did meet Tony and Cherie Blair in the run-up to that election. They came into the radio station where I worked, and I've got a photograph somewhere of me with the two of them. I'd love to see that. Yeah. I wonder where that is. I've not seen it in years, but maybe I'll have a rummage in some boxes. I'll ask Tony with it. For his I'm coffee. sure he's got it framed yeah. somewhere. <laughs> Look, he's, he spends a lot of time saying this is when I was photographed with Jeff Lloyd. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, where, where were we? Uh, Brian Cox. Yes. I'd have thought that maybe in the run of 2015 you'd have had some conversations with him around science or R&D funding or science I'm education. I'm sure I did, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I did. I'm, I'm an admirer. Yeah, and his, his programmes are obviously brilliant. Let me ask you a question. Would you go into space if you could? No. I'm not saying if Elon Musk asked you, because that's, that's complicated. I think I'd be worried about the toileting issues. <laughs> Zero gravity doesn't appeal to you? Not really, actually. Mm. What about you? It was all I ever wanted to do as a kid. I was obsessed with space. Whereas as I get older, I think, I don't know, I'm fussy about whether I even get an aisle seat or a window seat on a plane. It doesn't look very comfortable, space travel. It's it's probably not for me. I'm more archaeology than space, actually. Really? I'm quite into archaeology. Do you want to go on a dig together? I find there's something very extraordinary about sort of discovering these artifacts from you know three thousand years ago aha i've always had this sort of slightly sneaking archaeology thing that's so interesting yeah and um, sort of reaching out and touching the past mm-hmm. you know? and you don't like this idea that with astrophysics astronomy you unlock the secrets of everything on earth by learning the secrets of the universe well, I am very interested in Brian, and I'm very interested in what he's got to say. I think I find the enormity of it all quite daunting, if I'm honest. Mm. Don't you? No, and I don't, in a way that I don't think reflects very well on me. No, I think it probably does reflect well no, on me. No, so Jerry Seinfeld uh, in the writer's room on Seinfeld would have a picture of the Earth from outer space on the wall. And if people were getting too wrapped up in some silly problem about writing a show or getting it done, he would point to that and say, look, it doesn't matter. That's what this whole planet looks like from space. Go a bit further back. It's a speck. And it's, it's, it's a way that some people find it very easy to get perspective. I, I hear someone say that and I still think, but what about me and my problem, though? I know, but doesn't it make you you and your problems feel very small, and that, but in a bad, not in a good way, in a bad way? No, I wish it did. I think it sort of makes me feel a bit sort of... Like a tiny speck. Well, you are a tiny speck, and I, and I think we would all do well to remember that sometimes. I find it slightly vertiginous. Is that the right word? Yes, it is. It is. I think that's exactly right. But do you not think if you could think more like that, you could release yourself of some of the terrible crushing weight of responsibility and expectations you put on yourself? Well, maybe that. I think we're, I think we're developing a theme here because well, later in, this, in August, we're going to be talking to Oliver Berkman, who's written a book called 4,000 Weeks, mm. which rather deals with similar issues and... Jude Rogers, who we're also talking to, uh, deals with some of these issues in a way because she's talking about music and sort of losing yourself in music. Yes. So maybe we've got maybe we've got a theme here. Maybe we have. Maybe it's existential, cheerful summer. Reasons to be existential. <laughs> yeah, reasons to be existential. <laughs> reasons to exist. He's been a tiny speck. <laughs> He's been a uh, an, an ancient object. <laughs> 
Sh- shall I explain why we're talking to uh, Professor Brian Cox? Yeah, I think so. He is on tour at the moment um, yeah. with a show called Horizons, a 21st century space odyssey. He- he's already broke his own Guinness World Record titles on his last live tour, Universal, for most tickets sold. Record breakers. On the most tickets sold for a science tour. Over 158,000, and for an individual science show, over 11,000 at the arena in Birmingham. So he knows what he's doing. I mean, we've seen it on TV. He can bring mind-bogglingly complex subjects to life, and that is what he will be doing on this tour. Uh, It says here, I'm reading from the press release, it's their words, not mine. It'll take audiences on dazzling cinematic journeys, a story of how we came to be and what we can become. That sounds enticing, doesn't it? I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So our guest today is Professor Brian Cox. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So our guest for this episode is on tour. The tour is called Horizons, a 21st century space odyssey. And joining us is its host, Brian Cox. Hello. Hello. Pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you. Before you came on the call, Ed was trying to figure out if he was on the dance floor during D-Ream at the Royal Festival Hall in 1997. But as they say, if you can remember 1997, were you there? <laughs> I think I think he was. I think uh, if I remember, he was dancing with John Prescott and Neil Kinnock. Yeah, I think, I think it was a, it was a loving. Exactly. <laughs> Some people who are listening to this podcast, Brian, may not know about your extraordinary rock music past. You, you were in Dream. You were in a band called Dare. Is that right? Yeah. So when I left school um, at 18, I didn't go to university. I'd already joined the band with, I'm going to say some some guy who was a musician who lived down the road from me, but the guy actually was the keyboard player in Thin Lizzy. So it was one of those remarkable things. And this is Oldham. So I joined that band just before I did my A-levels. And in that year, we got a record deal. And so I ended up when I was supposed to be at university, I was touring. We, our first shows were supporting Jimmy Page, believe it or not. So it was really in at the deep end. So I, I was in a rock band for five years, left that band to go back to university to do physics with uh, astrophysics at the University of Manchester. And then I needed a job. So in my summer before I started university, I became a sound engineer for a band that didn't have a deal. And then that band got a deal. And they realized that I play keyboards and they said, oh, will you play keyboards with us? And that was D-Ream. And then, of course, D-Ream are most famous. That was 1992, 93. We're most famous for Things Can I Get Better, which is, as you know, the new Labour election anthem of 1997. What do you remember about that song becoming an anthem in that way? Were the band squeamish about it at all? No, I remember that someone, I don't know who it was, someone from Labour got in touch with Peter Cunner, whose band it was, and said, first of all, do you mind if we use the song? And and Peter was very enthusiastic. And so they said, well, would you like to do some of the election rallies? And so we said, yeah. We did a few rallies. And then, of course, that night, the, the election day, the famous A New Day is Dawning Day, they said, well, we can't do anything at the moment because obviously... We, we don't know that Labour was going to win. We were brought into central London um, and kind of hidden away in a, in a hotel, actually, <laughs> waiting. And so we, we sat there together watching those great moments everybody remembers. And then um, we got the call saying, OK, we won. Come over to the Royal Festival Hall and do the, the show. It was an absolutely wonderful experience. I mean, I think everyone who remembers it will remember that those moments of transformation in politics can happen. And the band 
split up soon after. Is that right? Well, I mean, it, it kind of fizzled out a bit. And I was then, by that time, I was a, a postdoc. I mean, even in 97, I was in the middle of my PhD. So you were doing it while being in the band? All the way through. That says something about your personality. Was it something sensible in you? Or was it just the, the astrophysics was a bigger passion for you? No, it was astrophysics was a bigger passion by a long way. I decided when I was in the previous band that, I mean, I like playing music and I enjoy it. But I much prefer learning about the universe and the underlying workings of nature. <laughs> it's funny, actually, because I thought, well, there you go. So I, I have made this 100% trade. I've said, OK, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go on television. All that stuff is done. And I'm now going to just go and do physics. And then, of course, the way that my, my career has gone, <laughs> I've ended up playing much bigger venues than I ever did as a musician. <laughs> that must be a weird thing, because occasionally you must meet people who've had some kind of career in entertainment and they're accustomed to treading the boards. And th then it's that in very different circumstances in lecture theatres. Whereas you, it's, it's, it's scaled up. It's a far bigger scale than anything because of the way music industries change. But Dream would have experienced. Yeah, it is. And you can't predict it. It's strange. I mean, I, I'm not surprised that people want to come to shows or watch television shows about this stuff. I mean, we'll talk about that later, I suppose, about black holes being the, the end of time in space, the origin of the universe, the question of are we alone in the universe, is there life on Mars? Everybody's interested in these things. So I'm not surprised about that. But obviously, I didn't think that you could play somewhere like the O2 and sell out an arena essentially talking about physics and cosmology. That's clearly, that was not predictable. And do you get any Spinal Tap moments doing these shows? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> all the time. I'll tell you a Spinal Tap moment that I had, which is a kind of a name drop. So forgive me. One of my friends is Jerry Harrison. They played in Talking Heads, right? So they're a big band. And we just did the shows in, in the US, actually, a couple of months ago. So after the show, I said, I'll come back to the hotel with you. I'll get in your car. And he said, well, yeah, I've, I've got my daughter's car. It's a really old broken down thing. So we went into the car park and I hadn't thought that the car park next to the venue is the car park where everybody parks who comes to the gig. So it was full of two and a half thousand people who'd come to the gig. So first of all, they're surprised to see you in a car park. But secondly, it was this broken down old VW Golf. And we couldn't get the seats forward. We couldn't work out how to get it open. So I said, oh, I'll get in the back. I'll climb in through the window. And I got stuck. So I got in halfway into this Golf and my legs were po poking out of the window. And of course, it's everybody who was driving past were people who'd been to see my gig. So they just saw my arse and legs hanging out the window. And, at the, and Jerry couldn't stop laughing. And he said, you know, you, you're not a rock star, are you? You just don't think, no one else. No, I'm not. I just don't think about these things. That's very charming. So if you come to one of the gigs, you, you'll probably see, if you want to see me afterwards, I'll be in the car park. Probably stuck in a, trying to get in a car. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Brian, talk to us about the aim of your tour and what are the kind of things you're talking about. Well, at the start of the shows, I it opens actually with a piece of classical music, Sibelius's Fifth Symphony, Third Movement. And I'd asked a friend of mine who's a conductor, what should Stanley Kubrick have used in 2001? It was kind of a joke. But he immediately said, Sibelius. And this piece of music, it was written in 1915, which was coincidentally the, the year that Einstein's general theory of relativity was published, which is the framework that we use to describe the, the evolution of the universe, gravity, space-time, and so on. But it was also written at a tremendously difficult time, of course, in Europe. And yet Sibelius wrote this hymn to the beauty of nature. And, and at one level, it's about swans taking off from a lake. But at another level, it's about the deep, hidden beauty and structure of nature, if you look carefully. And so the show is about exploring nature in that depth, and in particular, very exotic things such as black holes. But another level, I think cosmology always raises questions that are not scientific in nature. It raises questions about our place in the universe. I mean, just the, the statement, so I can just say it, what we've discovered, we, we are one planet around one star amongst 400 billion stars. 400 billion in one galaxy amongst two trillion galaxies in the small patch of the universe we can see. That's what we've discovered in these hundred years or so of doing cosmology. How's your vertigo doing, Ed, with that statement? Vertiginous. So that that must elicit an emotional and intellectual reaction, which is what Sibelius was doing in, in his music. And so some of the show is about talking about what that means. How should we understand those numbers. One of my great heroes, Carl Sagan, said astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. So the humbling is easy. (laughs) We've just done it, right? It's humbling. Character-building, all the way through the show, there's a thread. There's a 2001 element to it, actually. It's how we came to be here and what we can become. There's a political element to this. What could we become on Earth? What is our responsibility? And actually, I also argue in parallel in the show, and this is where the character building comes in, that knowing what we know about the evolution of life on Earth, it's a reasonable guess that the number of civilizations like ours in a typical galaxy might be around one, one-ish, non-one, something like that. So it follows that we might be it. In this galaxy of 400 billion suns, This planet might be the only planet where collections of atoms have come together in patterns, that's us, human beings, that can think and can feel and can, in a very real sense, bring meaning to an otherwise meaningless corner of the universe. 
And so that's the twist. That's the character building bit. So notwithstanding our physical insignificance, we might be astonishingly valuable because of our rarity. But that meaning, in a sense, is perhaps only important in the context of it being a facet of our consciousness. If everything is just a bunch of chemical reactions, and then the consciousness that we have is a weird facet of that, the the meaningfulness or otherwise of it is in some ways unimportant, and then in other ways it's the most important thing in the world, because what else have you got? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think um, meaning, I'm using it in in a very simple sense, right? I think meaning is a product of things like brains, right? You need thoughts. You need something that can think in order to have meaning. So if this is the only planet for thousands or even millions of light years in every direction where that has happened, then this is the only place where meaning exists for thousands or even millions of light years in every direction. And I actually said this at COP26, by the way. I, I was asked to give a, a little intro for the world leaders. That My brief was, if you've got one thing that you'd like to tell them, what is it? And I said this. I said, that if, you know, if, if through deliberate action or inaction, or a combination of both, you eliminate this civilization, then you probably, in my view, eliminate meaning in a galaxy of 400 billion suns, potentially forever. So that's... Have a think about that. That's responsibility. Well, and I think it's actually real. I don't think that's just rhetoric. Yeah. I think it's a good working assumption. But part of the show is to make that case. It's really interesting. I think that if you look, if you look real, real depth, right, a real insight into the question of what it means to be human, th- these answers to such questions lie in the grey area between ideas, ideas that seem contradictory, And there's a contradiction here, apparently, at first sight, which I lay out in the show, which is we are physically insignificant, but I think we are extremely valuable, definitely. Fragile, finite, valuable. Somewhere in that mix of ideas is the answer to the question, what does it mean to be human? I do point out, I say to the audience, I don't have the answer, otherwise I'd charge more for tickets, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'd also, I'd also be wrong because nobody knows the answer to these deep questions. But it's, that's the starting point. Is the implication of what you're saying that in the other, is it two trillion galaxies, there's likely to be civilizations? I think it's inconceivable there won't be other intelligences out there. The question is how far do you have to go to meet one? So if I was to guess, and I emphasise it's a guess, I would say that microbes may be all over the place. But it's a big difference between cell, microbe, and civilization. Just to give you one fact, which is we do know, is that on Earth, it took around about just under 4 billion years to go from cell to civilization. About 3.8 billion years. That's a third of the age of the universe. That's how long it took here. And so when you start saying, well, is that typical? I don't think many astronomers would claim there are many planets and star systems that are stable on those kind of timescales. Stable enough, anyway, to give you an unbroken chain of life for 4 billion years. That's what we are. I mean, it's astonishing when you think about each one of us. There's a direct line going from each one of us to some population of cells 3.8 billion years ago in a primordial ocean. On Earth. An unbroken, on Earth, a prime, unbroken chain. That's astonishing, that. And in that time, you go from a cell 
And it's hard enough to go from geology to a cell, right? But that's the origin of life. Then you've got to go from a cell to something that can sit here and have a conversation, right? That's also hard, <laughs> undoubtedly. What you said has made me think of something else, which is how do we think about the context of time in the context of these two trillion galaxies? Have they always existed, these two trillion galaxies? It's a great question. No. So you might have, everyone will have seen the James Webb Space Telescope, the JWST that's up there. Yeah, yeah. One of the things it was designed to do was look so far out into the universe that if you think about it, the further you look, the further back in time you look. So I'll give you an example. The, the, the closest galaxy to us that you can see with the naked eye, big galaxy, is called Andromeda. And you can just about see it. You can certainly see it with binoculars. And that, the light takes two million years to reach us from that galaxy. Right, two million years. So you see it as it was two million years in the past. So what the web can do is look so far out that it's seeing the light from the first galaxies and it's watching the first stars and galaxies form. So we know the universe was very hot and very dense, thing we call the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, just nearly 14 billion. Uh, solar system formed about four and a half billion years ago. And we've got that map because we can see that with things like the Webb Space Telescope. So, so that's what we know. So that's the, the length of time the universe has been around for. What was there before that then? It's a great question. Come on, Brian, answer it. <laughs> the answer is that we, we have theories. We don't know, but we strongly suspect that the thing we call the Big Bang which is the origin, we used to call that the origin of the universe, the origin of time. We do strongly suspect the universe may have been around before that. And that was something that happened in a pre-existing universe. We really don't know the detail of that. And I was going to say one of the central elements of the live shows is the study of black holes. And black holes are amazing things because really they're a prediction of Einstein's theory back in 1915. But nobody really ex accepted that they would exist until the... I would say really the 70s, right? So it, and we've only just got really photographic evidence of them in the last few years. But those things are the opposite of the Big Bang in a, in a very real sense. It's amazing to say, and I show people the images of these things, and say that in Einstein's theory, they're the end of time in space. Astonishing thing to say. This is why Einstein really to the day died, really didn't think they would really exist in nature. Because his theory predicts that if you've got a black hole, you're looking at the end of time. So because we've got these things we can study in space, inside of which is the end of time, according to Einstein, then you flip it around and say, well, if we can understand those, then we have a better chance of understanding the beginning of time. And we don't really know what that was or if there is such a thing as the beginning of time. I don't understand how you can be looking at the end of time, though. Well, so in Einstein's theory, the description is... And it's astonishing. I spend quite a lot of time in the live shows doing this. We've got beautiful graphics, by the way, to help. So I don't just stand there with a blackboard. Oh, it's not just you and the lectern, we, then? No, we, we, we've got our, our LED screens. Uh, I think they're about 35 metres across, right? So they're <laughs> massive LEDs. So in Einstein's theory, the predictions for what is a black hole, well, the little ones, at least, are made by stars collapsing, and the big stars collapse and collapse and collapse when they run out of fuel, and nothing can stop the collapse. So they just collapse without limits. And if you look at what the description is in Einstein's theory, the description is that space and time swap round. 
so distorted becomes the fabric of the universe that space and time swap roles. And so in the center of the black hole, what you'd call the center where this thing has collapsed to, there's a thing called the singularity in Einstein's picture. And that thing should correctly be described as the end of time. So in that kind of language, the reason that you can't escape a black hole if you fall in to a black hole is the same reason that you can't run away from tomorrow. So if I say to you, let's all run away from the weekend, which direction <laughs> are you going to go? Then you can't because it's in, it's in your future. And inside a black hole, there is this thing in your future inexorably, which is called the singularity. So it's properly described as the end of time. So that's so strange. These things exist. So we have to face the consequences. And that's why they're fascinating. One of the many reasons they're fascinating. Wow. What do you think that spending so much time thinking about this has, has done for the way you approach the, you know, at best 90 odd hundred years that you get on Earth? It's one of the things I think about a lot, actually, and that the show is about that a lot. It's about all these questions. I think it's the same, isn't it, with any field. Ultimately, we're talking about what it means to be human. We're talking about the human condition. We're talking about the human response to being alive and to having these short, finite lives in this vast universe. I say, actually, at the start, I kind of poke fun at philosophers and say, I think, and it's a joke, right? I say, I think there's only one interesting philosophical question, which is, what does it mean to live a finite, fragile life in an infinite, eternal universe? I think that's it, right? I don't think there's any other interesting <laughs> That question. is such a good question. <laughs> Can I ask you about other life in the universe? Not microbes, though, but, but basically we want to know about if we can keep it as a pet or if it can be our overlord. Well, microbes would be... I mean, so as we speak, there's a, a rover on Mars called Perseverance, which is on a dry river delta, a dried-up ancient river on Mars, and it's digging down, taking samples that are going to be returned to Earth so we can search for life. So the, the first question is, did life begin anywhere else? Which is a huge question. I would not be surprised. As I said before, I honestly think the history of life on Earth tells you that that's going to be rare. It's going to be a rare thing. I mean, ju just because of the length of time, as I said before. So, so my guess is you'd have to go many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of light years to get to the next place like this. And the chances of discovering evidence of that during not even the span of one human lifetime, but probably the, the span of human existence on Earth is, is presumably low as well. Well, it is. However, it's worth saying that we do look and we have scientific programs for looking. There's one called SETI, where we get radio telescopes and we search for signs, signals of other civilizations. And that's really valuable because I emphasize again, I don't know and nobody else does either. We're guessing here. So what we're trying to do really is explain something which is, it's become known as the Fermi paradox after Enrico Fermi, great Italian-American physicist, but also it gets called the great silence in astronomy. And that's the observation that at the moment we don't see any sign of anything. I mean, if there's civilizations all over the place, then, you know, we're still valuable. We have this wonderful, unique world with unique culture and the things that we do. I wouldn't be so concerned if I knew that there were another thousand worlds like this in our galaxy, where all these things, uh, music and art and whatever it is, all these things happen. One of the reasons I'm extremely concerned about our trajectory at the moment is I don't think there are 
I don't think there is anywhere else, <laughs> nearby at least. So that doubly worries me. I think Jeff sort of was hinting at this earlier. How does the enormity of what you deal with, Brian, and think about affect your own life? I mean, I'm not asking how it sort of affects your weekly shop, but, you know, how do you sort of cope with it? The thing is that it's interesting to to not know, right? Sometimes I'm asked, you know, what what, what makes a scientist, right? And one of the things that makes a scientist is being really delighted in not knowing. And so I, I don't know the answers to any of the questions that we've spoken about. We just have a load of observations. And that to me is exciting because it means that there's stuff to learn. So what it does really, when I think about it, is it makes me interested historically in what other people have made of it. We're putting together a classical music version, hopefully, of this concert, this this show, because the classical music is so central to it. So at the moment, I'm trying to put together a full orchestral version, which will be amazing, right? So I have a full symphony orchestra playing Sibelius. A friend of mine I was talking to about it all introduced me to a Strauss. So thus sprach Zarathustra, also spoke Zarathustra. So that's the that piece of music is famous. But my friend who's a conductor said, have you heard the rest of it? And I said, no, I haven't actually. So I listened to it. It's about 30 minutes. And it's basically a musical tone poem, but it's based on Nietzsche's book with the same title. And I hadn't read Nietzsche's book either. So I went back to read it. And there are thoughts in there. It's basically an exploration of what it means to be human and the different ways we have of trying to answer that. So there's an element of using religion to answer it and there's an element of using science to answer it. There's an element of becoming one with nature. It's all in there. It's all been thought about before, right, in different contexts. It's in 1890s, right, 1880s when that was being done. I just get interested in these threads because someone points out that these questions, the one you asked me, they, they've been asked, actually. People have, people have had different answers over the decades and centuries, and it's just interesting. So the, the impact of my life is that I go and find these things because I'm just interested in this central question. If there was one scientific question to which you could have the answer, if Jeff could grant you a wish, what would it be? Oh, I mean, uh, there's some I've already mentioned. I mean, I would love to know whether there's life in the solar system beyond Earth, microbes. I'd love to know that, which is something that we might find out soon. But if you want to go deeper, the black hole stuff, which I'm really obsessed with at the moment, I'm really interested in it. We're, we're, We're beginning to ask questions such as what is time? What a bizarre question. What is time? We're beginning to think that space and time are made of something else, right? So in a very real sense, they come out of some other deeper description of nature. So I would love to know where that research is going. So Stephen Hawking is obviously massively famous. If you go to Westminster Abbey and look at Stephen's gravestone on the floor of the Abbey. He's there with Newton, you know, the the great scientist. It's a beautiful part of Westminster Abbey. And on his gravestone is written the equation for the temperature of a black hole. It says T equals. It's on the floor of the Abbey in stone. So actually, Stephen's discovery, 1974, that black holes have a temperature, is really pointing towards the fact that space and time are made of something one way of interpreting that equation. And so we're beginning to, now we're getting much more insight into into what that might be in our study of black holes. And what I'll say is 
We actually think it's coming from quantum entanglement, which is a whole other thing. So you're going to tell me what, tell you what quantum entanglement is. I'll say one thing, which to bring it back to Earth slightly, which is just fascinating. And when you're a science minister in the next government, Ed, or whatever you, you know, then here's a, here's a thing. Here's an interesting kind of lesson in a way. That, um, so we found that the study of black holes and this, this quest to understand the nature of space and time has crossed over with very real challenges in building quantum computers. So quantum computers, which are real things and very, very important, I think, in our future, you know, billions of dollars gone into research into these things, very powerful. They're also based on quantum entanglement. And it's astonishing that there's a crossover in the two research fields. And the most mind-blowing crossover of all is that we're beginning to understand how information can be encoded in black holes, right? So they store information, even though there's nothing there. And ultimately, we believe the information comes back out into the universe again, of everything that fell in. It's, it's bizarre stuff. But here's the most bizarre thing of all. We're beginning to understand that the information is encoded in the same way that you have to encode the information in the memory of quantum computers to prevent them from being susceptible to errors, it's called quantum error correction. So it's an astonishing discovery about the nature of our reality, which is pointing to the fact that nature solved a problem in producing space and time out of something else that we're trying to solve in order to build the next generation of computing devices. No one who's in charge of investing in research, if you'd have said, what is the impact of your research on black holes? then people would have struggled, right? It turns out that it, it, it might be leading us to understand how to build quantum computers, which will have probably an un, unimaginable economic benefit in the future. So it's another example. It's serendipity in research. It's very beautiful. Ed, you look like your mind is... Before we started recording, Brian, Ed, Ed was gloating about the <laughs> fact that he'd been on Wikipedia and he noticed that he did better in his maths A-level than you did oh, yeah. in yours. Uh, how, are you, yeah. how, are you, how are you feeling about that now, Ed? <laughs> I, I ain't gloating anymore. I've had a gloat bypass. It go, what did you get in your maths A-level? I got an A. Yeah, see, I found that maths, and I say this when I go into schools, I found I had to practice and I wasn't actually very good at, at practicing. I was, I was into so many things at school. I was into music and all this stuff. And I really was a bit, I was basically a bit lazy. I kind of relied on the fact that I could do physics. I, I, was, I was good at that. And some other things, I was good at history as well and stuff. So I could just kind of cruise along. And so I did. And cruising along was not good enough in maths. And so I didn't do very well. I don't know about whether you found it somehow natural or whether you worked hard. Because I, I found I had to work hard. What's weird was that I was good at maths and found it quite easy. And I also got an A in A-level physics. I think I just did well at physics because I was good at maths. But I just I, physics was never my sort of thing, really, for some reason. Yeah. I think the sort of the, the kind of simplicity of the numbers was something I could get my head around. But the sort of complexity of physics was something I always found quite tricky. I think it's quite unusual, actually, that. And there are people like yourself who are naturally good at maths, but many of the scientists I meet, kind of working scientists, just found out they had to do some work. And, and I ended up doing all the maths options at university eventually, and, and ended up doing the theoretical physics as options at Manchester. But it, it came to me later when I did a bit of work. One of the reasons I think actually it's worth mentioning is because, you know, often people get categorised in life far too early. Yeah. And, you know, 
if somebody had said, okay, well, here's this person on paper who got a D in A-level maths, are they going to go on to be this extraordinary scientist, astrophysicist, etc.? You'd say, well, obviously not. You know, and it's so interesting the way that people get written off. Yeah, and, you know, I was really lucky because I came out of school in, what, 86, and then went to university ultimately in 92. So I was at a time when you could do that, you know, and, and Manchester took a bit of a... A risk, I suppose. I got an A in physics, right? So yeah. I obviously could do physics, but I got below the level you would not need, certainly now, in maths. So interesting. And they let me in. I think you're so right that, you know, people mature and people change. And I certainly did. I just wasn't, I wasn't ready for university at 18. I wouldn't have taken advantage of it. So interesting. Should we end with a sort of reasons to be cheerful on brand. What gives you optimism? My experience of doing the TV shows and the live shows is that I think we underestimate people. Totally. I think we underestimate their capacity to be interested and to understand. And so what gives me optimism is that I can go and talk to an audience, in this case, you know, 15,000 people from all kinds of backgrounds and professions and so on, and they will engage and understand difficult concepts. I could ask you, actually, but I think in in... In politics at the moment, I think we underestimate people. Yeah. I think we're scared yeah, that's a good point. of the electorate because there are obviously very complicated things going on at the moment, geopolitically and economically and all that. It's a very complicated mess. And I think the, the slogan kind of school of politics just means that really we, we have a lack of respect for people. I think people can, if you actually sit down and say, right, okay, so this is the position, right? This is complicated. If you do this, there's a trade-off here. If you do that, there's a trade-off there. So what makes me optimistic is I think that the overwhelming majority of people have got a great deal of capacity to understand very complicated things if it's communicated. So the thing that depresses me is that in many areas, we don't try to communicate properly. It's been absolutely mind-blowingly, stonkingly brilliant. <laughs> okay, people, people have to, I mean, you, you've done a, such a job of, I think anybody who's listened to this, the first thought is, I want to see this thing. I am going to come to this show. I am just going, I am just de- so determined to come. I just, <laughs> it's like, honestly, it's absolutely brilliant, Brian. It starts at the Royal Opera House on the on the 1st of August. And if people Google Brian Cox Horizons, they're, they're going to find out all the venues and all the dates. They'll be fun, the Opera House ones, because they're a smaller, you know, smaller, uh, small. I mean, it's a, in my wildest dreams, it's a big, beautiful venue. But yeah, they'll, they'll be a different kind of mixture. And then we go off into the big arenas. So yeah, they're, they're both going to be fun. Thanks so much, Brian. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer uh, produces all the content, books all the guests, and she's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composer music. Our idents were made by James Deacon, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.